Our Father in heaven, we're thankful this morning that we have this opportunity to be together. We ask that you would bless us in being together, that good might come from the time we spend in the study of your word and in the worship that we will engage in. We pray that our study will produce a better understanding and that our worship will draw us closer to you. We recognize, Father, that you are good and kind and generous, that we have so much, not that we deserve it, but because of your graciousness. Thank you, Father, for all you do for us and with us and in us. We also understand, Father, that uh, we often are weak and either do not do the things we should or do things we shouldn't do. We ask you to forgive us when we fail. Help us to be more determined to do better and to make right choices in our lives. We pray, Father, you'll bless Eddie as he recovers. Bless others who have health problems among us. We ask for your blessings on all who have opportunities and needs to encourage others. Now, continue to be with us during this hour. We pray through Jesus. Amen. I'm going to save them the trouble of answering this question. They, they may have to answer it, people who are not in this class, but Sarah, it, it says in the bulletin that Sarah will have her babies today. And she might. But she might not, because I think the uh, time for her going to the hospital may be transferred till tomorrow. Evidently, a lot of women are having babies, and so the schedule may have to change. So she doesn't have them today. She'll have them tomorrow, we hope. Uh, our study this quarter is titled, Why We Believe, and I know uh, that Eddie put a lot of time and effort into preparing this series, and we believe it's going to be helpful to us. I know some of you have heard the following story, and I know that there's never a possibility that you've forgotten anything I ever said, but I want to repeat it for those who haven't heard it. Years ago, an older woman who was a longtime member of the church where I was preaching called me on a Sunday afternoon. And she had been talking to a friend of hers about some Bible subject. And a question was raised by that friend that she couldn't answer. And she, she called me and said, Brother Han, what do we believe about that? Okay, takes you a little while to get that, all right. What do we believe about that? Well, the truth of the matter is she didn't believe anything about it. She didn't know the answer to the question. But the implication was, Brother Han, if you tell me what you believe, that is what I believe too. Well, I think we recognize that each of us needs to have our own belief. You, you, others can't have your belief, and you can't have others' belief. Each of us has to have our own belief. No, not different from each other. There is one faith, Ephesians 4 verse 5 says, we strive for the unity of the faith. That is all believing and practicing the same thing. That's the goal. 
But each of us has to have individual faith. We, Our children cannot have our faith. They have to have their own faith. Our parents cannot have our faith. They have to have their own faith. In the first lesson, Eddie mentioned the importance of being grounded in our own faith. And, and that was a very important point to begin with. And we do that by Bible study privately and Bible study publicly. We, we have the benefit of not having to just study by ourselves. We can study with others. And, and hopefully those times that we're together are helpful times to encourage us on our own private study as well. In future lessons, and there are going to be 11 of them, we're going to be looking at evidences that cause us to believe that God exists, three lessons, evidences that cause us to believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that it is an inspired document, five lessons, and then three lessons on believing that Jesus is deity, that he is truly God. And so uh, th th those are lessons that we have to look forward to. Now this lesson today deals with a question that has troubled many people. And if you, if you picked up a lesson sheet, and I hope you did on the way in, and you should do that every week to pick up one for this week if you don't have it, but also one for the following week. The question is at the upper part of the lesson sheet, why did God create man if he knew at the time of creation that most of men he would create would spend eternity in hell? That is a question that has been asked. Um, now, th that question doesn't trouble atheists because they don't believe in God. And so they don't believe there is a God who created man. And his brother, the evolutionist, is no better because he believes that somehow something climbed out of that primordial slime and over centuries developed into what you see before you today. Uh, you know, one is as silly as the other, truthfully, to believe there is no God or to believe that uh, God didn't have anything to do with creating us. Um, I have said before, sometimes people talk about uh, uh, theistic evolutionists. That means people who believe in God but believe in evolution. No, you can't do that. You either believe in God or you believe in evolution. You can't believe in both. Now, the question also does not bother those who think there is a God but if somehow formed in their mind that belief that he is a bad God, that, that he is a God who punishes because he delights in punishing. Uh, J.B. Phillips wrote a little book years ago called Your God is Too Small. And not everything is good in that book, but he noted that there are people who view God as a policeman who is looking for people who are violating the law so he can arrest them and punish them. And there are people like that in the world today. Now, that kind of person would not have any, any problem with this question because that's what he thinks God wants to do. He wants to punish people. But it, but it troubles people who believe there is a God and are struggling to try to understand why he would create man if he knew 
that the man that he created had the possibility of being lost and especially being eternally lost. Now, that is valid to believe that there are going to be a lot of people eternally lost. Uh, you've seen it many times. But look at Roman, I mean, look at Matthew, the seventh chapter, for just a moment. I know we talked, we talked about this last week in class, but in, in, Romans 7, in Matthew 7, verse 13, you have heard many times Jesus saying, Enter by the narrow gate, for notice, wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now Jesus has to be talking about something beyond this life, because he talks about few who find life. Well, the people he was talking to were already living. This is an extension of life and eternal life. Incidentally, if you also look at verses 21 through 23 of the same chapter, our Lord plainly says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will it, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Notice, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many mighty wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Even people who might profess to have faith in Christ, might profess to work for God, will be lost. Now, because some people don't have a satisfactory answer to this question in their own mind, they conclude that maybe somehow their faith in God is misplaced. That maybe God isn't as good, that, that God isn't as fair as we have believed he is. Maybe in some cases, God is unfair. Incidentally, uh, th that doubt has led to several religious beliefs that uh, actually contradict what the Bible teaches about eternal punishment. Jehovah Witnesses would have you to believe, according to their doctrine, that when evil people die, they just go out of existence. That's their punishment, is going out of existence. Doesn't sound like much punishment, does it? They live evil all their lives, and then when they die, that's the end. That's not punishment, doesn't seem like to me. Seventh-day Adventists are the same way. Now, we have some, even in the Lord's Church, who are saying very vocally that there is no eternal punishment. In fact, a man that I have known for many years and highly respected has been threatening to write a book in which he claims he's going to try to argue there is no eternal punishment. Well, there's a lot more to the study of this question than we have time for in one lesson and in one study. And we can't say everything that we need to say about God's nature and the nature of sin and other things that uh, certainly would be appropriate. We, we can't answer all the secondary questions that might arise when you're considering the main question. There are lots of different uh, spiders that crawl out of this nest. 
So I'm not trying to tell you everything that needs to be told. I'm just saying that we're going to, to talk about some things that are important. Now, I hope that you have read or will read, but not at this moment, the lesson sheet that Eddie prepared. Because I'm not going to really go over that lesson sheet. I'm not saying anything about the quality of that lesson sheet. I think it's very well done. But, but my approach is going to be just a little bit different. And, and, and I think if you look at what Eddie wrote, you will see value in that. I hope you see value in what I want to talk to you about for a little while. I, I, I want to think about some of the arguments that people use to try to discount the idea that there is an eternal punishment. Because I think that's a, that's a question that is in connection with not only why would God create man if he knew he was going to be lost, why is there such a thing as being eternally lost? Does that make sense? It doesn't to some people. And they have argued against the idea that eternal punishment really exists. And, and one of the reasons that some contend there is no eternal punishment is that they say it is not consistent with what is uh, justice and what is goodness. It's just not consistent. And, and the, their argument would go like this. The Bible speaks of a just God and a good God. But it also teaches that there is a place of eternal punishment. And those, in their mind, just don't go together. How can God be good? How can He be just? And yet, how can there be such a thing as eternal hell? The problem with that, or one of the problems with it, actually there are several problems, but one of the problems is, who is allowed to define the standard of just and good? Is that us? In other words, do human beings have the right is it our own personal ideas that define the standard? There are a lot of people in our society today who are thinking that way, aren't they? Every man is his own judge. Sort of reminds you of the Old Testament. That every man did that which was right in his own eyes during the time of the judges. Repeated more than once. But was when that statement is made, every man did that which was right in his own eyes, is that a positive statement? Is God saying, and that's the way it ought to be. Everybody ought to just do what's right in his own eyes. No, we know that that's not the right way to live. You don't do what's right in your own eyes. You're not the standard. None of us are. Well, we would argue that the Bible alone actually determines what is just and what is good. In 1 Corinthians 15.32, Paul quoted a belief of some in his day. And here was that belief. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's, that was their approach. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And that's a quotation taken from Isaiah 22, 13, I believe it is, in which the prophet Isaiah is talking about the attitude of the Jews who were facing a crisis situation and punishment from God. And what were they saying? Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we're going to die. Kind of a, a casual approach to look. Here, here's our, we know what you're saying. God's going to punish us. Here's what we're saying. Let's just eat and drink because we're going to die tomorrow anyway. 
Well, they, they were wrong. And people are wrong who say, I have decided that God is not just and is not good if this doctrine is true. Some people argue that there should be no consequences for evil behavior. That is, until evil behavior influences them. Until it affects their lives. Now, have you ever heard of anyone? Just tell me if you've heard of anyone who has had a relative murdered who says, yes, they did wrong, but why should they be punished? You think anybody ever says that? Why, if somebody stole your wallet, just your wallet, would you say, well, yeah, they did wrong, but what's the difference? No, we don't, we don't operate that way. We think that there ought to be justice. Are we bad because we think there ought to be justice? Do we think if somebody murders somebody that we ought to just say, well, so what? Who cares? Punishment is consistent with justice. The reason we punish people who do wrong is that that is justice. Now, some people would argue that eternal hell is too long a punishment. And I think that argument has grown in the last couple of decades. And it basically goes like this. Why should someone be punished for committing adultery one time? Why why would a man have to spend eternity in hell because he cheats on his wife once? Well, first of all, let's ask ourselves, who is that one sin only person? I know that Peter wrote of some people in his day, 2 Peter 2 verse 14, he speaks of them saying, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. He doesn't mean when he says cannot cease from sin that they are not able to cease from sin. They won't cease from sin. But let's don't talk about the person who is just blatantly evil all the time. Which of us is going to stand before God and say, well, I only sinned once. You know, we believe that we fail, that we sin, we see it. If we're honest with ourselves, we know it's true. And we know what 1 John 1 verse 8 says, if, if, if we, and that particular context of the chapter there more than once, if we, we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But beyond that, if we say we have no sin, what do we do? We make God what? A liar, because God says that we're sinners. And so that idea of just just one sin, or maybe somebody says, well, my sins are so little as compared to this guy's sins. Where, where do you read of those gradations of sin? Where do you read in the Bible that God says this sin is unimportant and this sin is terribly important? Now, some sins can have greater consequences than others. A mass murderer may destroy a lot of lives. A person that tells a lie may hurt himself and somebody else. But they're all sin. And and maybe it's because people don't understand the nature of sin, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Let's also ask this. How does our justice system work? Or at least, how is it supposed to work? I know it doesn't work right lots of times. Can you imagine... 
a man standing before a judge, and the judge asking him, how long did it take you to kill your wife? Well, I shot her three times and she died within five minutes. Okay, five minutes in jail. Because that's how long it took you to sin, I'm going to give you the punishment that relates exactly to the time that you sin. We don't believe that's the way it ought to be. Even in our own human justice system, we believe that people ought to be punished, some of them for the rest of their lives, for what they have done. But here's the other thing. If eternal punishment is wrong, isn't eternal reward also wrong? Here is a man who obeys the gospel. He becomes a Christian. The next day he dies. How long should he get to live in heaven? One day? He didn't serve the Lord for years and years and years, did he? But even if you and I serve the Lord for 50 years or 60 years or however long, what's that in comparison with eternity? Do any of us feel like we're getting our just reward? <laughs> Or do we understand that it is through the graciousness of God that we get to spend eternity forever, even though our lives were only a short space of time? Okay, so here's the question. Again stated. Why eternal punishment? Why is there eternal punishment? Let's talk a little bit about the nature and fall of man. The Bible teaches in the, in the first chapter of Genesis that God created man in his image. Now that doesn't mean, when we talk about being created in the image of God, that we have all of God's omni-attributes. We are not all powerful, we know that. We're not all wise, we know that. We're not all present, we're limited to time and space. So there must be some other way in which God created us in his image. And one of the ways I believe he created us is with the ability to think and to decide. We are created with intelligence so that we can look at things and decide how we ought to approach those things. We, we choose to do right or wrong. You know, the nature of man is such that God could have only created us one of two ways. He could have created us so that we had to do right. We just had to. That's the way God created us, had no other choice. If that were the way that God created us, why didn't he just make us robots? Because we wouldn't be necessarily doing what we wanted to do anyway. We'd be doing what he wanted us to do. And he might as well just put a battery in us or something and turn us on. The other way God could create man, and this is the way he chose to create man, is not a robot who couldn't do anything wrong, but a thinking human being who could decide for himself whether he did right or wrong. And whether that, some people think that is a curse because we're allowed to choose, I consider it a blessing, don't you? That, that our God was so kind to us that He said, I'm going to create these human beings and I'm going to allow them the opportunity to reject me if they want to. But I'm also going to allow them the opportunity to say, I will serve you. I'll give you my life. 
Only one of two ways he could have created. He created us to think and to decide and to make choices. Now, the problem is we often choose wrongly, don't we? And, and I guess that's where people really get hung up sometimes. Well, yeah, but we choose wrongly. Yeah, but whose fault is that? Is that God's fault? Or is that our fault? Does God say to us, you, you, you have to choose wrongly? No, but we do. And is God not supposed to care about that? If choosing wrong is no different than choosing right, then what's the real advantage of choosing right? If someone just logically thinks about this and says, there should be no difference if I make wrong choices and I disobey God, then I obey God. Why should you obey God if there are no consequences, if there's no difference? Well, we know about the nature of sin. And we know about the nature of God. We know that man is a sinner. We know that God is sinless. The Bible presents God as being absolutely holy. That beautiful picture in Isaiah 6 when the prophet sees God high and lifted up and says, holy, holy, holy. He understood through the Spirit that God is above all, that He is holy and absolutely holy. We see God pictured in the Bible as one who cannot lie. He cannot break a promise because of His nature. He is sinless. But because He is sinless, He has to abhor sin. You see, God couldn't be sinless and say, but sin doesn't matter because it matters to Him. Because He knows what is right and what should be right, He cannot say, but I don't care about things that are wrong. He does care. And part of His care is not just because it offends Him for man to do wrong, it's that He knows what it does to man. You see, sometimes we look at sin and we say, well, it's such a harmless thing. No, it's not. It's never harmless. At the very lowest level, and I hate to use that term, but at the very lowest level, it's disobedience to God. But as you begin to think through what happens when we sin, it hurts us, it hurts others, and certainly it hurts God. Because His creation created in His own image is not behaving like God behaves. In the book of Habakkuk, the New International Version at Habakkuk 1.13 translates the words, You of God, you cannot tolerate wrong. And Habakkuk was right. You cannot tolerate wrong. You cannot say it doesn't matter. Now, we often say it, unfortunately. Uh, you know, it depends on who the person is sometimes, doesn't it? Well, yeah, I could condemn this person for doing wrong, but wait a minute, this person is somebody I love, this is somebody I don't want to hurt, and so I'll just tolerate their wrongdoing. God doesn't do that. Even for His children, God does not say, but those who are my children are different, and I don't care if they sin. That's what John says, writing to Christians. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We make God a liar. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. James 1.13 says of God, He cannot be tempted by evil, neither does He tempt any man with evil. So, here we are. Here's God, holy, absolutely holy, always holy, 
here we are not always holy. We should be, but we, we, we're not. We fail, we stumble, we do the wrong things. And when we sin, it has to have consequences. And one of the consequences is separation from God. You've heard Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 most of your life. Your sins have separated between you and your God. And, 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 and it was true of the Jews, but it's true of us as well. When we sin, if we don't try to take care of that sin, there has to be a breach. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, in chapter 2, he talked about them at one point in their life being what? Dead in trespasses. They were spiritually dead. They had killed themselves with their sins. Well, separation doesn't have to be permanent. That's the great news, isn't it? God is holy. We often sin. What is God going to do about that? Well, the people asking the question we're considering today are saying, why does God do this? Many of them are not asking the question which ought to evoke even more wonder, why does God save us? Why doesn't God just punish us? He's holy and we're unholy. Why didn't He just strike us down? Why does He even worry about eternity? Why didn't He just kill us? Because He's a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of grace. And so, God in His divine wisdom found a way to be both just and what? The justifier of those who believe. You see, the, God had a dilemma. And the dilemma was, I'm holy. These that I have created are unholy. What am I going to do about that? Do, do I just want to cast all? of them aside and give up on everyone? Or do I want to make a way possible for them to take care of that sin problem and be right with me? And he chose that way. But it was a costly choice. But because in order for God to be just, there had to be punishment of sin, right? And who took it? Jesus. Jesus became the punishment for our sins. Not in, not in the sense that some might determine it, but the one who suffered for us that we might not have to suffer. And so because God was just and the price had to be paid for sin and Jesus paid the price, you and I have an opportunity to be forgiven. And not just forgiven, but saved eternally. Now, what of those who reject Jesus and don't accept Him? What about them? Shall they go unpunished? If so, then you are faced with the dilemma of saying, why did Jesus have to die? If, 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 the, if the evil, if the sinner, if the unrepentant sinner does not change and embrace Jesus, does he get the same kind of reward that the person who does embrace him and confess him and follow him gets? I think this is where sometimes the decisions we make are emotional ones and not logical ones. 
you, you love a relative and you love a friend and they're not obeying Jesus and you, you, you are confronted with that idea of, is God going to save them anyway? And some people have decided that. Well, yeah, you know, they're not doing right. They haven't obeyed the gospel. They're not doing what God wants them to do. But God's going to save them anyway. Well, then the question is, why should any of us obey the gospel if he saves the lost without them doing anything about being lost? Accept what he wants from us and you won't be punished. Refuse what he wants from us and you can't go unpunished. Look, look if you will at Romans, the second chapter, please, for just a moment. Romans, the second chapter. I want you to look beginning at verse 4, Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you despise, notice, the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? I'm, I'm, I'm not through yet, but I want you to think about that. The goodness of God leads you to change your mind about the way you've been living. And to me... It is not the threat of eternal punishment that ought to motivate us most. Although I believe the threat of eternal punishment is a motivator, but the greatest motivator is the goodness of God. And I believe, and this is my own belief, you don't have to believe this if you don't want, but I believe that that's really the way God wants to be followed, through His goodness. He wants people to see, I have loved you, I have paid the price so that you don't have to be lost, and He wants people to respond to His goodness. But, verse 5 begins in the New King James, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Is, can it be any clearer than that? I mean, who, who would need someone to explain that to them? That is so simply stated. You do right, God will reward you. You do wrong, what else can God do but punish you? Listen, no one, no one can stand in eternity and blame God for anything. No one can stand in eternity and say, you're not fair. Because he will be. And my conviction, I hope it's your conviction too, is there will not be one person in hell who does not deserve to be there. There won't be one person in heaven who deserves to be there either. But who will be there because God loves us and is kind to us. But you go back one, one more verse now. If, if you look at Matthew 25,
Matthew 25. I want you to look at, and, and this is just an additional thing. Jesus is talking about, in, in Matthew 25, uh, about punishment and reward and so on. But what he says in verse 20, 46 is this, And these will go away into everlasting punishment. Everlasting is, is one of those terms that unfortunately is difficult for people to accept because there are a couple of occasions when everlasting doesn't mean will last forever. But it, 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 it's not the case here. But notice, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Within the same verse are two eternal destinies. Eternal life, eternal punishment. If eternal punishment is not true, then neither is eternal life. I think people would be a lot more consistent who don't believe in eternal hell if they'll say, I don't believe in eternal heaven either. I don't believe God will punish us. I don't believe He'll reward us. I just don't believe. <laughs> I would have more respect for somebody who took that position than I would a person who says there is no eternal punishment, but yes, there is eternal life. Okay, I have a couple of more things I can say, but I'm going to stop for just a moment. We're almost out of time, and I know sometimes Eddie doesn't have a chance to feel questions, and I don't feel them very well. So if you, you've got a question or an observation or a comment, I'd, I'd be glad to hear it. Anybody? Maybe that's why you didn't ask questions. Here, there's a lady that'll question. Right. If he had made us with the inability to do wrong, then doing right would have not been our choice. We'd have just been doing it. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Right. And, and we don't come to him saying, forgive me because I'm what I ought to be. <laughs> we, we ask through his blood and through his sacrifice and through his goodness. Good thought. Anybody else? Let me look with you just a moment at the, at the lesson sheet that Eddie gave because I do want to mention this and I think, and again, I want to repeat to you, nothing wrong with what Eddie wrote. I just took a little bit different approach. I think... It is a very valid point that he makes early about accepting our limitations. And that is that we understand, hopefully, that there are some things that God cannot really communicate to us because we can't take it. I mean, we, we're just not capable of understanding everything. There are some things that belong to the province of God and are sacred and secret to God. Now, he's revealed to us what we need to know. We don't have to worry about that. But there are some things maybe that we don't need to know. An illustration that Eddie used, I think, was about a parent and a child. You know, a child may ask a question. Uh, 
I mean, look around real carefully here. Here's a little child that comes and say, Mommy, or Daddy, let's say Daddy. Daddy, where do babies come from? Ask your mother, right? <laughs> mother says, ask your Daddy. And then when they neither want to answer, the child says, why won't anybody answer me? Well, the question is the child is too small, not ready to understand that. And it's, and it's not that you don't love the child, and it's not that you don't want the child to know. It's just that the child's not ready for that yet. There will come a time, and that, that understanding, our time is not going to come in this life, I don't think. In other words, we're not going to know everything now. Eternity will reveal many things that we maybe wondered about and questioned and wished we knew that God will reveal then, but not until then. Sometimes that's better for us. The, the other thing I want to mention is this. Some people will say you should not approach a subject or an idea with any kind of preconceived notion. You know how difficult that is? Now, let me ask you, how many people do you think approach God, whether He exists, His nature, whatever, how many people approach the subject of God and say, I don't have any convictions at all, I'm neutral? I don't think so. I think most people approach things like God with an idea, I believe in Him, or I think God is good, or I've heard that He's good, and I'm going to look for evidence to prove that. Or they say, I don't believe in God and, and I'm going to stay there or seek evidence for it, whatever. Now, I don't think that it's always wrong to have a preconceived idea and then to substantiate it. And we don't want to just depend on the preconceived idea. But when you substantiate it, it's not just a preconceived idea. It's right. Here's why I'm saying that. If you approach God and what He does with the belief that God is good, only good, always good, never bad, you don't have trouble with a lot of things. It's the person who questions the goodness of God who says, well, I just don't think God's being fair with me on this or I don't understand why God's doing this to me. Listen. If God is good, believe He's good. Don't, don't have two different gods, a good God when He's doing what you want and a bad God when He isn't. He's God, same God. If you approach God with the idea that God would never do anything except what's right, then you can believe in eternal hell because you know it's right may not be pleasant. There are a lot of things that aren't pleasant. You go to the doctor and he does some things to you that you don't feel happy about, but you need them. It's right. So I would say this in our approach to the idea of eternal hell. Let's, let's don't accuse God of doing anything wrong. Because if, if eternal hell is wrong, then so is eternal life. Can't get away from that. Thank you for being here this morning. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you.